Good morning. Everybody have a good Easter last week? Easter is always a great thing. We celebrate the very foundation of our faith, the resurrection, because really, if that hadn't happened, there'd be no point in us being here. Um, you know, I didn't think through this all the way when I agreed to speak the week after Easter. Uh, Easter was a, there was a traumatic event for me when I was a child at Easter, and it's taken me a long time to get through it. This is a family picture. And my grandmother's in there, my granddad's sister, my brother, some cousins, and the ridiculous uh, outfit is being worn by me. I don't know why they made me do that or why I agreed to let them do that, uh, but it's taken a lot of years to get past that. So Easter brings up those memories. My wife still puts it on social media most years. I think she spared me of that this year. Um, so, you know, Easter has been a struggle for me, but it's still a great time. And this is not Easter. This is the week after Easter, so maybe I can, I can get through this okay. Uh, naturally, there can be a little bit of a letdown the week after Easter, not just because I'm speaking, but that may be part of it. Uh, but, you know, Easter is what our faith is all about, and that's, that's the resurrection. So now we're the week after, and what do we do now? That's the question we have to ask as we live in this post-resurrection world. Some of you are basketball fans, some of you may not be. My family very much is, and Dirk retired a couple of weeks ago. This will mean nothing to those of you who aren't basketball fans, but I love Dirk more than any grown man should love another grown man. <laughs> and we had a chance to go to his last home game, and it was great, the whole night was great. Uh, basically everybody let him shoot whenever he wanted to shoot. The, they had a great tribute to him afterward where all these people came and talked about not just him as a player, but the impact he's had on, on people. And that went on for an hour or so after the game and then you know, the lights came on and people started leaving and I didn't want to leave because I knew when I left I was never going to get to see Dirk play again. And I just wanted to stay in that moment and. Finally, the kids were like, Dad, everybody's left. Like, we have school tomorrow. Can we please leave? <laughs> and sometimes I think about, you know, is that how the disciples and others felt? Jesus comes back. He rises again. He spends time with them. He ascends to heaven. And were they standing there like I was that night saying, all right, what do we do now? That's what we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about today. If you'll pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. We pray for your presence, we pray that you will speak to us, and that you will help us and show us the ways and the things that you have intended for us and our purposes as we live the rest of our days in this post-resurrection world. It's in your name we pray, amen. So last week, Darren talked about the resurrection, and he talked about the hope we have in the resurrection and how the resurrection restores our brokenness. And there is great hope that comes from that, and Scripture talks about it. John 14, 1 through 3 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am. In Hebrews 9, 28, it says, He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. In Titus 2.13, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. 
So we know that we have this hope. We know what our future looks like. We know that death has lost its sting. We know that because of what has already been done by Jesus, our brokenness is restored. We are made whole no matter what happens going forward as we live out our days here. But we're still here. And so what do we do now? And because of this hope we have in eternity, because we know the end result, I think that it causes us to be complacent. We're going to come back to this quote later, but it, it sums up what we're going to be talking about today. This is by Bill Johnson from the book, God is Good. And he wrote, we are the most useless in our faith when our confidence for transformation depends on the return of Christ instead of the work of Christ. His return will be glorious, but his work set the stage for a transformed people to transform the nature of the world they live in. So we need to start with a little bit of conversation about the resurrection itself. Because we can't talk about what we're supposed to do in this post-resurrection world unless we, we truly understand and, and believe in the resurrection and the impact that it happened. Because if this story is real, that a man was born of a virgin, was crucified on a cross, was buried in a tomb on Friday, and rose again and alive again on Sunday, and walked around the earth for a few weeks and showed people the holes in his hands and his feet and talked to people and performed miracles and then ascended into heaven. And that just doesn't make sense in our human understanding. But if that's real and it really happened, then it can't just be a story that we tell and something that we celebrate on Sundays or on Easter, but it has to be something that impacts every single moment that we're alive. And there's, there's a lot of evidence for the resurrection. I, I know this is uh, something that a lot of you, it, it comes easy to you. It does not come easy for me. It's something that I had to study and think about for a long time to really get comfortable with the reality of this story. But there's a lot of evidence for it, and this could be a whole entire sermon series. Uh, we're not going to do that today, but I do want to look at just a couple of, of pieces of this evidence. One is the stories that are written down and told in the Gospels and in Acts. These are eyewitness accounts of events that happened. And so if you think about how we use eyewitness accounts today, eyewitness accounts are given great weight. So in court, if an eyewitness saw something and they are believable, then that can be used to convict someone, that can be used to win cases or lose cases in court. Eyewitness accounts are important and are given great weight. And that's what we have in the Gospels. It's not just these fairy tales from years ago. It's things that people saw or talked to people who saw, and then they wrote it down. And what we see in that story is eyewitness testimony of an empty tomb. Now, there's a really important piece of that if you look at it. Somebody say, who, who were the first people to find the tomb empty? Somebody said it, women. This was a day and age when women were considered second-class citizens. All right, so if you are going to create this story and start this new religion and you're making this up, the very last people that you would say 
were the first ones to find an empty tomb on which your entire faith is based would be women because they were not considered believable or credible at the time. So now, that little piece of evidence gives even further great weight to the historical accuracy of the story. But we can't really stop with the empty tomb because even the critics of the early Christian uh, believers admitted that the tomb was empty. They just thought the body had been stolen and moved somewhere else. All right? So <clears throat> Paul talks about it. I'm sorry, not Paul. Uh, but in the Bible, it talks about this story and the story that had been created about uh, the body being removed. But you don't just see it in the Bible. There's other Jewish writings from the time that also talk about the fact that the tomb was empty. But the question is, where did the body go? So we, we can't just stop with the empty tomb. Then we have to look at the resurrected Christ and the appearances that he made to people. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, Paul writes this. He said, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was called from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. So the important part of this is, when Paul is writing this, most of these people are still alive. These people that Paul is claiming actually saw Jesus walking around after he resurrected are still alive and could refute that story if it weren't true. So again, like the women, if you're writing this story and you're creating this faith and you're making this up, you're not going to tell it this way and say things that people who are still alive who you're saying saw it could come back and say, no, that's not true. That's the type of evidence that gives credence to the fact that this can't be legend. This is historical accuracy. Now, the last piece of evidence we're going to talk about today that relates to this question of what do we do now is the transformation of the lives and the actions of the people who saw this and witnessed this and how they went on to risk their lives to tell this story. Let's look at James, not James the disciple, but James the half-brother of Jesus. And first we see the James that's described in John chapter 7, verse 5, where it says that Jesus' brother, brothers, including James, told him to leave because, quote, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Then in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that same James who had seen Jesus in the resurrection becoming one of the leaders of the early church. We all know the story of Paul, his experience on the road to Damascus. He goes from persecuting Christians to writing most of the New Testament. All the other disciples who go on after hiding in a room and hiding behind locked doors to living lives and risking their lives to tell this story, and most of them giving their lives in order to accomplish that. So, we don't really have to wonder what those closest to Jesus did when he left this earth. You know, we talk about how we feel the week after Easter. What do we do now? How I felt when Dirk walked off the court for the last time. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't just sit back, stay complacent, stay comfortable, and wait for their reward in eternity. Instead, their life mission, their life purpose, completely changed based on what they now knew to be true. So what do we do now? If the resurrection is real, 
then how can it not be life-changing for us? You know, our tendency as humans is just to ride this out, and as Christians, is to ride this out and wait for that reward in eternity. Yes, we generally try to be good to people, try to help people when we can, but we don't want to get too far outside our comfort zone. I need to make something really clear. I am not at all today talking about our salvation. Our salvation, if you have received grace, it is ensured by the work of Christ on the cross and the resurrection, and our works do not have an impact on that. We're not today talking about salvation. But we are intended for so much more. We are intended to have a significant impact on the world that we live in. Romans 12 9 through 21, I was about to clear my throat, but my wife told me that I need to stop doing that when I'm up here speaking. So. <laughs> Caught myself. She was at the first service. You guys can tell her I stopped myself. 9 through 21 in chapter 12 of Romans, it gives us a roadmap for what we are supposed to do while we're here on earth. And as we read through this, I want you to think about it and listen closely to what it's telling us that we should do and contrast it to what we actually do. Start with verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope, be patient in trouble, and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. There's a couple of things in there that I do pretty well, but most of them I'm, I'm terrible at. And what we tend to do, instead of doing these things, we take the easier path. But what if, what if we really did this as Christ followers? You know, how, how are we viewed in the world? Not great. How would, be, how would we be viewed if we truly lived out these things? Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. And 2 Corinthians 5.20-21, So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So these two scriptures, we see that we are priests, not just Darren as the pastor of this church or other pastors, all of us in the resurrection through grace, we are priests and we are ambassadors. 
We are plan A, God has no plan B. If we're sitting around waiting for God to solve the problems of the world, he did, he made us. But instead, we make things about our agenda, and we try to make our faith fit our view of the world, our view of what is right, our view of what other people should be doing. And, and we can make everything based, sound like it's, it's based on faith and coming from our faith. I've done it. I won't accuse you guys of doing it. You probably haven't, but I have. So some examples, you know, I'm not going to spend time with those people because I don't like what they're doing. I'm not going to go to that place because I'm not comfortable with what's happening there. I'm not going to engage in this critical conversation or this issue because it's not going to do any good. We can make our complacency sound like it's coming from a place of faith, but it isn't. And I don't think we do this because we reject it or we don't want to have an impact or we don't want to do these things. I just think it's as simple as we like to be comfortable. And especially in the time we live in, there's a lot of comforts in our homes and our vehicles and our phones and computers and air conditioning. Um, it's easy to be comfortable, and that's how we're wired, and, that, and that's what we want. And our comfort is what pre prevails. We prefer comfortable situations, and we don't like tension, and we don't like difficulty, and we don't like things that are uncomfortable. So we want to take the easy path, but we need to start being intentional about taking the hard one. Because it's on that hard path where true impact happens. The comfort was not promised to us. There's a lot of promises from God. Comfort was not one of them. In fact, if you look at the stories of the post-resurrection people and the early church, it should make it really clear that the things we are intended and purposed and created to do to be priests and to be Christ ambassadors. What comes with that is the exact opposite of comfort. But that's the choice we have. Are we going to be comfortable or are we going to be impactful? If you look at Acts verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 19, Paul talked about this a little bit. He said, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. So he's telling us, if you're going to serve and you're going to do the things you're called to do, there's going to be tears, there's going to be trials and testing, and it's going to be hard. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 29, he also talks about his suffering. And he gives some examples of things that had happened to him. And he says he received 39 lashes. He was beaten with rods. He was stoned once. I'm pretty sure he's talking about stoning with rocks, not the other kind of stoning. He was shipwrecked three times. He was adrift at sea. There's nothing comfortable about the things that we're called to do as Christians. So why was Paul willing to do that? Why were those early disciples and early followers willing to be so uncomfortable? Because they knew that the resurrection was real and that it had really happened and they could not simply go on living a normal and comfortable life. There is a C.S. Lewis quote for everything, and there's one that applies here today. C.S. Lewis said, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. See, that, that's great 
that we have received grace and, and the hope that we have in that. And that's great that we're okay and we know what our future holds. But how are we going to impact the kingdom? Every single one of us has a story. And that story matters. And we're all supposed to be working on something big. And it, it may be big in that it impacts thousands of people, or it may be big in that it impacts one relationship that you have with somebody that will then have a domino effect through the years. But regardless of what that looks like for each of us, for all of us, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to be stretching ourselves and challenging ourselves, and we have to embrace the tension if we want our lives to be impactful. In Acts chapter 4, there's a good story that demonstrates this, and most of you are familiar with this story. This is when Peter and John have been arrested. They've been in jail. They go before the high priest, and Peter's talking about Jesus is and who he was and what he did, and the high priest command him to stop speaking about these things. And they threaten him, and they tell him what's going to happen if he keeps teaching in the name of Jesus. And what does Peter say? He says, I can't do that. And he knows what the consequences may be, and eventually he suffers those consequences. The council threatened him at that time, but they did release him. So Peter and John, they run back to the other believers, and they tell them what's happening, and they tell them what they've just been through. And what was the response of those other believers? What would our response have been? To pray for safety? To pray that these things that were coming to them would be avoided? Lord, keep us safe? That's not what they said. They prayed for boldness. They prayed to have the courage to go step right back into those same situations and suffer those same consequences because they understood that they cannot have great impact by being comfortable and by playing it safe. And I'm not just talking about personal safety, and I'm not just talking about evangelizing. In fact, here in the U.S., it is unlikely that we are going to suffer the type of persecution that these people suffered that we read about. But I'm talking about those circumstances and situations in our life, those relationships, those moments, because our greatest growth occurs in those uncomfortable moments in life. There's a pastor and an author named Brett McCracken, and he wrote a book called Uncomfortable. And he does a really good job of describing what we're talking about and the type of uncomfort that we need to embrace instead of running from. And he talks about those tensions that we have, those, those unresolved questions that we, that we just put aside, and he encourages us to wrestle with those and to talk about them and to be okay with them. And to be okay with being challenged in your faith, in the things you believe, because it's a constant molding as we become more like Christ. And to be willing to have hard conversations with people you may be in conflict with. And, and in that book, Uncomfortable, he talks about politics. And he talks about how, as Christians, we all, I don't care which political party you, you believe in, but he talks about how we want to make our faith match our politics. And that there should be tension and uncomfort. And if you're perfectly aligned with one political party or the other, you're probably not where you need to be on that. And he talks about our obsession with culture and fitting in, and he calls it being cool. And he writes this. He says, cool is about self-promotion and narcissism, 
while Christianity is about selflessness and altruism. Cool is transient and obsessed with the now. Christianity is transcendent, mindful of eternity. Cool is elitist, while Christianity is humble. Cool is cynical, while Christianity is hopeful. Cool is about being the first to discover a new trend. Christianity says the last shall be first. And then he writes, when we blend in, when our boundaries are blurred or disappear altogether, our light in the darkness fades and our salt loses its saltiness. Now, I, I'm not good at what we're talking about today. I'm really good at choosing the easy and comfortable path. And I'm good at rationalizing my views and making them fit within my box and avoiding a difficult situation or choosing to walk away from something or someone and being able to justify it. But as I look back, those times when I have grown the most in my faith and in my walk with Christ are the times when I have been willing to be uncomfortable, when I've been willing to embrace some tension. It may have been in a small group setting with people who think differently than me, have a different view of Scripture than me, but to be open to what I can learn from them rather than writing them off simply because we disagree or have a different perspective. Or having conversations with each other and other believers and, and being able to challenge each other in love. Uh, there's a guy some of you know named Doug Vaughn. He was an elder at this church. He's now on staff at Gateway. Uh, there were a lot of things that Doug and I disagreed on. But Doug had a way of challenging and pushing and stretching in, in love in a way that I knew he was still for me. And there's very few people that have impacted my faith the way that Doug did in those conversations, in those moments. Listening to teachers that I'm uncomfortable with, but I'm willing to let them challenge me. Attending a church that I'm not used to, but being open to what God may reveal to me through people who have a different perspective, instead of judging and rejecting because of our differences. And isn't that what we do? We have all these denominations, and we focus so much on our differences instead of being willing to be part of the kingdom together and stretch each other and grow each other. This is going to sound odd, but I hope here at Crossroads we make you uncomfortable. I hope that we challenge you. I hope that we stretch you. And when Jen and I were first married and we started looking for churches together, we were in maybe about 25 or so, and we had grown up in different church backgrounds non-denominational, I was in a traditional church background, and so melding that together early in our marriage was a struggle and a challenge as, as we looked for churches. But I can tell you, in my mind, I knew what I was looking for. I had my perfect little box. I needed somebody that would sing four songs and four only. Two of them needed to be old hymns. Two of them needed to be new. Uh, you could raise your hand, preferably only one, not both together, preferably like right here, but not all the way up. I remember we were attending a church when we lived out in D.C., and they had their equivalent of the Crossroads Discover 101 class. And I remember going and asking the pastor, you know, hey, what's your belief on dinosaurs? And here's what I was doing. I wanted to be comfortable. I wanted a church that fit within my box and fit within my faith as I saw it. It's kind of funny looking back on it now, but really I was just arrogant and selfish. When we first came to Crossroads, I remember Jen saying, you're going to hate this church. <laughs> but luckily by that point, God had opened me up a little bit to being challenged and being stretched.
you know, we have five elders here. If, if you ask us, not on the foundations of our faith, but if you ask us our opinion on something, you're likely to get five different answers. And that's okay. And that disagreement and that tension is okay because it challenges us and it stretches us and it's where impact happens. The way we do things in Western Christianity is just in such conflict with what we're supposed to be doing in a post-resurrection world. Our personal preferences are not the same as biblical principles. You have to get rid of this thought that everything has to make sense and it has to line up perfectly with the way you see things. You know, I, I wonder quite a bit if we are becoming or have become like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, where we receive Christ, and then suddenly we see ourselves as part of this accepted, enlightened group, and we start judging and ignoring and marginalizing those that we see on the outside, and we're simply waiting for our reward in eternity. And compare that to people who are broken and truly submit, and who has the most impact on the kingdom? See, it's way more than just our conversion moment. The resurrection is the foundation of everything, but it's way more than what it means for us eternally. There's a guy named John Allen Chow. He was a 26-year-old missionary from Washington State, graduated from Oral Roberts University. He had studied sports medicine, could have gone on to a career as a sports medicine trainer. He decided to become a missionary, and he, and he went to this island called the North Sentinel Island. And it's in the middle of the bay between India and Malaysia. And on this island lives a tribe that's the most isolated tribe in the world. This place is entirely untouched by civilization. Uh, so much so that there are laws in this area that prohibit people from from going to this island, it's not safe. These people want to be left alone. John decided that he was gonna reach them. So he takes a boat, the boat is anchored off and then he gets in a canoe and he goes to the island and he yells, my name is John, as if they're gonna understand him. My name is John, I love you and Jesus loves you. And the response he got was that these people started shooting bow and arrows at him. One of them went through his Bible. He was able to scramble back to his fishing boat, went back home, continues to think about this. And then in November of 2018, he decided to go back. It was illegal to do so. Some said he was crazy. And, you know, we hear these stories about these people, and, you know, I think sometimes we, it's hard for us to picture these people that would do this. Here's John. Average, normal, American 20-something-year-old college graduate chooses to go back. This time, one of those arrows found him, and he died. And so you hear this story, and some people dismiss it as crazy. But let me tell you, he knew exactly what he was doing. And he did it intentionally. And we know this because he wrote to his parents before he went that second time. And he said, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please don't be angry at them or at God if I get killed. 
Now, I'm not saying that to get outside of our comfort zone requires us to do what John did. It might. I hope it doesn't for me. But, but there is something significant and impactful that we are all supposed to do if we recognize that the resurrection changes everything. Because the power of the resurrection is the power that changes fear into love, despair into joy, guilt and shame to forgiveness and freedom, death into life. That same power that does those things, that rose Christ from the dead, is the same power that lives in us. And it's that power working in and through us that can be so impactful if we will just step outside our comfort zone. The foundation of this church, which is etched in the rock out there, is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And it says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Now, how we each go about living the things of Isaiah 61 and doing those things is going to look different for all of us. But if we're going to do it, for every single one of us, it is going to be uncomfortable. We have to start viewing ourselves and our time here and our purpose through the lens of the resurrection and what that means and God's desire to have an impact for, in and through us. There's a, another quote I want you to look at by Marianne Williamson in a book that she wrote that I think really captures what we're talking about today. And she wrote this, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. If we're going to do what Marianne is saying and get past that fear of being meaningful and impactful and what that means, then we're going to have to be willing to be uncomfortable. We can stay on the easier path and we can remain irrelevant or we can go down the harder path and we can have impact. We go back to that first quote we looked at earlier for Bill Johnson. I'm going to read it again just in light of, of what we've talked about today. We are the most useless in our faith when our confidence for transformation depends on the return of Christ instead of the work of Christ. His return will be glorious, but his work set the stage for a transformed people to transform the nature of the world that they live in. That's my prayer for all of you, 
that you will be willing to embrace the tension, that you'll be willing to be uncomfortable and take the harder path so that you can be impactful and transform the world that you live in. At this time, I think our prayer team is going to come down. They will be here at the front as we close out in song. And if there's anything that they can pray for you or with you about, please come down and see them. Thank you.